This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. I'm Lorraine Sommerfeld. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of The Driving Podcast. We're going to be tackling a wide variety of topics on this show, but my goal is to make sure they'll all increase your knowledge and comfort as a consumer. Vehicles are a big investment for most households. To help protect that investment, today I'm speaking with Chris Muir, one of my favorite mechanics, who is also a professor at Centennial College School of Transportation. I'll admit, part of the appeal of Chris is that he knows there are no dumb questions. I can ask him anything. For most of us, we pay people to maintain our vehicles, and we trust that they have our best interests at heart. It's a lot easier to keep a long-term customer happy than constantly hunt for new ones. That said, sometimes customers bring their own interesting twist to the game. What did Chris think of the reader who asked me why he shouldn't bring his own parts to his tech for a brake job? Let's find out. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. You've got a lot on your plate, and I want to pick your brain over a big array of topics today. One of the first questions I got in the second I said I was going to do an Ask a Mechanic segment, which uh, apparently people have been missing, was a woman with a Nissan Sentra 2015. She asked me if she should be worried because she's having CVT problems. Should she be worried, Chris? I wish I could say no, she shouldn't be worried, but unfortunately, that transmission is uh, one that causes worry, uh, not only for the customer, but for the technicians that, that's uh, got to deliver that bad news. Um, anytime we open those things up, um, number one, Nissan told us to never open them up. We used to put them in what we'd call the casket, which was the, the crate that they'd ship the new one to us in, and the only way to really fix it was to put in that new one. Anytime I've seen one go to a rebuilder, transmission shop, or even playing with uh, used units, it never, ever ends up very well. What range of vehicles are we discussing here? So um, the CVT, particularly Nissan CVT, came in almost every automatic they offered, save for a few select you know, traditional truck platforms and their very tiny car, the Micra, didn't have a CVT. Everything else had a CVT to varying amounts of low success. Um, you know, way back when they came out with them initially, um, they were introduced in the Murano and they knew that they had a big problem with them. They ended up having to extend the warranty on those early Muranos to, you know, 250, 260,000 and over 10 years of coverage on those transmissions. Um, Nissan has this idea in their minds that they've they've nipped it in the bud and they no longer have CVT issues. So that, that extended warranty, I don't believe, exists on other, other um, products in the lineup. I know when Dottie sent the question in, she said that she'd been Googling and I do the same thing. Whenever I'm looking for problems, I drop it into the Googler with the make, model, year, and problems. And every single car that's built some version of it could conceivably have an issue. So I don't discount an entire array of vehicles for that reason. You can have one that's just off, you know, and they're all fine. But 
this popped up a lot. The APA, the Automobile Protection Association, actually has a class action lawsuit they're putting together. Um, do you think that's what I should tell Dottie to do? Is that what she's going to have to be looking yeah, at? Yeah, I, I would imagine uh, that's what Dottie's going to have to be looking at is uh, unfortunately uh, pursuing them uh, through those means. I will let her know the news if she's not listening. I'm going to move right on to a different topic because it's also very popular and it's probably a pretty short answer, but we're seeing a move to synthetic oil into virtually all new vehicles that I can think of. And I have a lot of people, if my dad was still alive, he'd be the one saying this. Why do I have to change to synthetic oil? So Chris, why do we have to change to synthetic oil? So the, the switch to synthetic oil, um, is really for longevity um, of intervals between changes, as well as for the tighter tolerances of new engines. Oil, uh, synthetic oil is made from the same base stock as your conventional oil. It's got old dinosaurs all ground up in it. Um, What they do with synthetic oil though, is they make sure all of the molecules inside of it are of a uniform size. It's easier for it to move around in the engine. It's easier for it to get into um, tighter places so uh, we can get tighter bearing clearance. And it's easier for uh, the manufacturer to run a lighter weight oil if it is a synthetic. It still has a good coverage, but it doesn't have as thick a coverage uh, as was needed in an older engine. Because it doesn't go on as thick, it removes a lot of weight from moving parts inside of the engine. And if I don't have to move that weight back and forth, I translate that into fuel savings, believe it or not. So there's a there's kind of a myriad of reasons that we're switching over to synthetic in the industry. Uh, number one, longer uh, maintenance intervals, which is good for the consumer. Yeah, you pay double for the oil change, but you only do it a third as much. Fuel savings, which is always good. Let me ask you a question. Since we're talking about oil changes, they do go longer. We used to say 5,000 kilometers or every six months. And further to that, you taught me, if you don't hit the 5,000, still go for the six months. A lot of people aren't using their cars very often anymore. A lot of them are sitting in the driveway for longer or they've left the workforce entirely. So for non-pandemic reasons, they're not out as much. Should you still be changing your oil even if you don't hit the mileage or kilometerage, is that is that a word? When should you be doing it, regardless of what the speedometer is telling you? So a lot of those uh, timed intervals um, are based on when the oil is going to break down naturally. And believe it or not, not driving the car uh, is worse than going, you know, a thousand kilometers over your your lifetime of, of oil if you're still within that time interval. When the car is stopped and started and stopped and started, you know, things that you would do, run to the grocery store, maybe you're not commuting to work, the car's never heating up, that oil, part of its job is to clean the engine. It's grabbing the carbon, the blow-by, the sludge, and there's more blow-by when the car is cold. So that oil is suspending more particulate. So even if you haven't hit that mileage, you really should be doing it according to the time interval uh, because, again, you're collecting acids from combustion, you're collecting uh, solid particulate, you're collecting moisture from the environment that the car is being run in, and it never gets up to temperature to burn that off. So um, time is is probably more important than mileage, believe it or not. Oh, I, I believe it. I also think that that's a false economy sometimes when you think you're saving a buck that'll cost you way more in the long run than just doing something that that easy to do and that cheap. We often talk about used cars, and we always, always, always tell people before you put down a lot of your hard-earned money on a used car, make sure you have a technician check it out for you, an independent one. 
a lot of people, when it comes back to bite them, this is a uh, step that they skipped. Now, what is it we're telling people to do? If I say, take it to Chris, give him an hour with like an hour of shop time, what is it you are looking for in a used car? What are you looking to tell that consumer to be careful about? So when, when one of my customers or when a customer brings me a car and says, I'm considering buying this before we ever do a safety on that car, um, we want to inspect the car and make sure that it's going to be right for the consumer and it's going to get you know, the best life, that it's actually got good components on it with good life in them. Um, kind of a, a misconception about the, the safety program, and this is, you know, province to province. The, the standards change, but they, the kind of the song is still the same, right? Um, the safety standard is to meet the lowest safe standards at the time of inspection. It doesn't give you any real guarantee as to the, the quality of vehicle that you're buying. Um, it says it's safe enough for the road at this exact moment as, as the technician is looking at it. It doesn't say how it's going to be tomorrow or next week or anything else like that. So we'll get that out of the way. When my consumer or my customer brings me a car and says, hey, I'm, I'm really considering this, we go deeper into it. We start looking for, you know, bad fixes. We start looking at frame strength, body strength, um, repairs there. We start looking at the fluids in the vehicle. Is, has the oil been changed regularly, right? Is that something that we can see? Um, does it look like somebody's taking care of this vehicle? Are the belts fresh? Are the hoses fresh? Are all of these things that aren't necessarily safety um, going to last a, an appreciable amount of time? Or should the customer be ready for some repairs after they buy their, their dream car? Um, that's stuff that the, the safety standard or, or when you buy a car safety doesn't really cover. I think people would be surprised to learn at how little brake material has to be left, for instance, uh, to pass a safety. And I know they, you know, toughened it up here in Ontario a few years back. They went from a one-page checklist to something like a 60-page checklist. But from what I've gathered, it didn't actually mean the vehicle. I mean, it had to have springs now, which, you know, wasn't it springs <laughs> they didn't have to have? Something shocks. Like that. It, it was, That's uh, it. It didn't was have shocks. shocks. Yeah, yeah, they had it, they had to be connected top and bottom, but they didn't actually have to dampen. Now they have to uh, control the ride of the vehicle. It's, it's real yeah. life-changing stuff here. <laughs> well, yeah, instead of stuff that you could use as props at a play, like it actually has to, it has to go. But I think a lot of people, they hear safety certificate or a pass for something, and they believe that that is the vehicle they want to be riding in. But it's a starting point. And somebody like you can tell them, here's your starting point. If I were you... I would get the brakes done or you're going to be looking at that in three months or so. And tires don't have to have a lot of tread left on them or life left in them to pass the safety. So that's why we tell people, please, please, please get a tech to look. The other thing they're going to find underneath is corrosion. There's a lot yep. of modern cars that have so much plastic on them from the outside. They look fabulous, but underneath all kinds of corrosion going on. And if it's in the frame, or important parts, you, you're going to have a problem. And depending on where you are in the country, there's a lot of that going on under your car. I'm talking to you, Maritimes. And Ontario, Ontario's got nothing to brag about either. So 
No, there's, um, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right there. There's all kinds of plastic skirting and fairings around the bottom of the car to make them look lower and longer and to cover up kind of, you know, those rock chip prone areas. And they do a great job of protecting against the rock chips, but they also do a great job of holding the snow and more importantly, the salt up against the actual metalwork of the vehicle. So I, I see it all the time. You know, car looks great from the top and from the bottom. It is an absolute nightmare where we can't even put a regular hoist under it. And this is the problem with falling in love with a car and being emotional about it before you know what you're actually dealing with. And I say this as someone who knows this and has has children who have learned this, <laughs> that no matter how much you love it, no matter how pretty it is, you get the go-ahead from a tech first before you go to the next step. Otherwise, it's a lot of money. You might be you know, flying out the window on you. Speaking of mechanics, Lloyd, um, he asked me this. I've saved this question for a few weeks now. He bought his own brake pads because he went on Amazon and he got a great deal. And he didn't like the price that he paid previously at his mechanic. So he went into his mechanics holding his Amazon find and they refused to do the job. They said they they couldn't. And he called me or emailed me back and said, oh, well, I made all kinds of noise again like my late father would have made. And I said to him, no way. So please tell me, Chris, why would a shop, why would a reputable shop not want to go there? So uh, probably probably the number one reason that we don't want to go there, and there is a few, and I'll get into a couple of them, but the number one reason, I can't guarantee the quality of those parts. I can't guarantee that I'm going to do the brake job and your brakes aren't going to shake. The pads aren't going to fall apart. Um, there, there's no guarantee in the labor that I put forward. And instead of getting into this headache at the end where I go, you know what? You gave me the parts. I put them on. Now I got to take them off and put on different parts. You're going to pay me twice. That becomes this gigantic argument with the customer. Um, so a lot of this is just circumventing that. The other thing is, is I'm liable for those parts when I put them on. If they are bad brakes and you go careening through, you know, a nunnery, I'm responsible for the the damage that ensues from there. Um, so I don't want that uh, that responsibility. On top of that, if I supply the parts, the supplier that I bought my parts from warranties those parts and my labor from defects. So if those parts are no good and I have to go in and do the job again, somebody is paying me and it doesn't have to be the customer. And finally, on top of all that, um, if I get the parts for you, I make a little bit on top of that, right? Uh, there's a little skim there as well. So you might be paying an hour for labor, but I've made 20 bucks on the pads as well. Now I've made $120 instead of that 100 that I, I was going to charge before, um, where I lose that, that cushion, where that might have absorbed some of my shop supply, some of the lubricant that I used on the brakes, some of of the stuff that I had to take off my own shelf and apply to this job. But the overriding safety issue makes that an absolute non-starter. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the safety as well as the guarantee that I can't put behind yeah. my work at that point. Yeah. And I think a lot of this plays to how much do you trust your mechanic? And I've got a shop here I've been going to for 25 years. I send everyone to them. And I think that's what you have to do. You build up a relationship with either a dealership or your local mechanic. And I tend to go to the dealership while my vehicle's in warranty because I want them to know, you know, I want to have that firsthand relationship with them. But for oil changes and tire tire stuff, 
I love my guys up the road. They're great. And I tell other people about it. And because of that, when they say to me, you need this or it needs that, I believe them. And I don't feel like I have to go on Amazon and find parts to go in and save a buck. Now, most shops, we've spoken before about service advisors at dealerships. You develop a relationship with somebody who you can trust. And I always say, if you can't, then walk, like find somewhere that you can, because there's a lot of great independents out there as well as dealerships that you can work with. And I know you've got some, some of the work you've done is with crazy off-road people. They have to trust you. Absolutely. I mean, um, not only are off-road customers, but we also are uh, a mom and pop shop that, uh, you know, has, has minivans, right? A lot of our clients we've built from minivans and seen their children through, through growing up. And, you know, uh, we hired a, a mechanic from a dealership this summer because we got bigger. Uh, we needed to bring in another licensed guy, which is always good. Um, but he was stunned to see that relationship because he is that traditional dealership mechanic where they hide out in the back. They don't have the interaction with the customer. Now, all of a sudden, he's seeing us talk to our customers by name as they walk in the door, not, oh, no, I've got to look up this person, um, you know, asking about their families. How's the car been? Oh, you got a new car. That's great. Can't wait to see it when it's done warranty, that kind of stuff. Right. Um and that's the kind of relationship that I as a mechanic want. And you know what? If my customer doesn't trust me, I've done something horribly, horribly wrong. And that's, I, I think it's unfortunate sometimes in this industry that with people buying new cars like dealerships and mechanics, it goes to adversarial very quickly. And I wish it didn't because you can build up really good relationships on both those fronts and deal with people that you trust. And I try and help people build those relationships because I think they're really important. It, it's a big, big outlay. And to keep it safe, you have to do the maintenance and you have to trust the person that you're handing it over to. It's like a doctor for your for your kid a little bit. Anyway, I, I completely agree. Um, there's something to be said knowing about case history as well, right? Keeping that, that yeah. relationship with your dealer um, where they yeah. can see that you've kept up on your, your maintenance in order to honor warranty and stuff like that. That makes your life a lot easier as a consumer as well as having that relationship. Stay tuned. Lorraine and her guest will be right back. Now back to the driving podcast. Alan asked me, how many years can he keep his tires? Well, as boat bumpers, as long as you'd like. Um, but, <laughs> but so tires have a date of manufacture stamped in the uh, DOT number. Uh, the DOT number is a 12-digit number that is stamped on the sidewall of the tire from the manufacturer. And the last four codes on that DOT number tell you the week and the year that they were produced. So now that we can carbon date these tires, they are a uh, perishable item. They're made of natural and synthetic rubbers. They break down under UV and humidity and everything else like that. So just like your bananas, they will eventually rot themselves to death. How long do you have with these tires, though? We usually go by a 1, 6, and 10 kind of interval. If I'm buying a tire for a customer, I want it within that year. I don't want something any older than a year because when I put it on my customer's car, I want to go, hey, you're good for the next 9 or 10 years. Now, that said, 9 or 10 years, you don't just put them on and forget about them for a decade, you have to keep checking up on them to make sure that they're wearing well. Uh, and right around that six year mark, we're really starting to look at them for any kind of degradation. We wanna see if they're starting to crack, if the belts are shifting, if the carcass is coming apart, right? That's when we're really gonna get into that, that scrutinizing tires kind of every three to six months. When we get the tire rotation, we're gonna be staring at them going, 
ooh, is this tread nice still? Is it still pliable? Is there weather cracking in here where the carcass is coming apart? So short story long, you're anywhere between mm, probably five and 10 years as far as age goes. Mileage depends on uh, the type of tire that it is, right? You get a race tire, super soft. It's going to be gone within a season or two. Winter tires, oh, super soft. You run those in the summer, forget about it. You don't get two years out of those. This came up, uh, the winter tire question came up when the pandemic started. Uh, and several people said, I'm just going to run them through the summer because I'm not using the car that much and I can't be bothered to turn them over. And I went head to head with a couple of colleagues because I said, that's crazy. Our heat, like our climate is so extreme. Those tires are so soft. You're going to thrash the tread right off them with one, you know, one boot to the cottage and that'll be it. And they argued and said no, but I know some people uh, last fall, they ended up basically having all seasons instead of their winters. And I switch my tires out. I get more wear from them by doing that. I have them on dedicated rims. But I, you know, I care about the tires. Everything you have is riding on four hand-sized patches. Like, that's what you have between you and death, you and crashes into another car. I mean, it's just not worth cheaping out on. No. And, you know. That's why I switch out for winters and all seasons. Um, we're going to learn more about all all weathers. We're getting into that on a different show at a later date. But I really wish people would not get angry when they have to change their tires. Or tires, tires are absolutely everything when it comes to a car. Uh, I mean, the biggest way to change the performance, whether it be off-road or on-road or racing, is to change out your tires for something that applies. Uh, and and th with that said, winter tires are designed for winter, for cold climates. Below 7 degrees Celsius is what we always hear, and they're not lying to us. Um, we are going to get better life below that threshold. So, Chris, when we're talking about winter tires, they're a lot more pliable than all seasons. And you brought up the 7-degree point. And even though there's a pandemic, I don't like people leaving their winter tires on all summer. It, I don't know. We're in crazy times, but this is the way to get through it isn't to trash your car. Your tires are super, super important. And the other thing is tires have a warranty and it's prorated. So what that means is if after two years, something separates or three years, you're into a tire and one of the four you find is faulty. And that doesn't mean you've picked up some road shrapnel that's on you. Um, they will prorate it. So it's not that they give you the money back for that tire or a new tire. You will have to pay something towards that. That's right. Yeah, it, it's basically okay. um, they take a little bit off the price of a new tire. And if you've skinned out your winter tires by ripping down the road in the summertime and there's no tread left, your prorating on that tire is going to be very low because you've used up the useful life. Um, worse than that, a winter tire is pretty much good for the first half of the tread wear on it. That's where we're going to see a lot of the siping and a lot of the tread detail, the stuff that really grips the ice that we see, you know, towards our more southern climates here. Uh, once you get rid of those sipings and that fine detail, it becomes just a glorified all-terrain tire, which they turn into hockey pucks on an icy road. Okay, so what we can tell Alan then is depending on the quality of the tire that you bought, that will have some impact on how long it will last you, your driving habits, whether you switch it out for winters or not, and how you store that tire when it's not on your car. So That's right, keep, yeah. Have your mechanics to keep an eye on it and, you know, every six months when it's in there, get them to look and let you know where you're at. Okay, last topic here. Uh, it's been jumping at the 
paper for the last couple of weeks, I've been writing about the daytime running lights on vehicles. Transport Canada brought down a new ruling a few years after they promised, saying that daytime running lights, the little ones on the front, will the rears will have to somehow be hooked up in the lighting system. They didn't make it very clear. I was not happy with the wording on this legislature because I think it leaves too much room for people to evade what we're actually trying to accomplish. But you've all seen vehicles running down the road with the rear is totally black during a storm at night, all different makes, all different models, all different years. Toyota and Honda are the worst offenders. Toyota has told me that they're, you know, they've got it all reined in now. But effective September 2021, we're supposed to not be having that problem anymore. But they still haven't hooked the DRLs up to the rears in most cases. They've just made the headlight system come on at dark, which is a permanent auto. How do we get people, how do we teach people that, because obviously all the cars aren't new right now, that that auto setting is so vital to have the rear lit up? Probably the best thing that could happen is the manufacturer figures it out, steps up to the plate and, and offers a software update for the majority of these cars. Most lighting systems now aren't your traditional switch and uh, direct to relay kind of a setup. They're going through the body control module. That's how you get that feedback when you click your remote and all the lights come on. There's a module in there already controlling those lights and to Update the software on that module with a recall or a dealer visit would probably be the simplest and most effective way of fixing or retrofitting those old cars. Aside from that, it is really, really hard for a customer to actually realize that they've done something wrong. Uh, I get it all the time where a customer has taken their car in for service. They come out of the service department and the mechanic shut the lights off because we didn't want to kill the battery while we're servicing the car. We take the car for road test, it's daytime, we forget to turn the lights back to the auto setting, give the keys back to the customer, and because the stock doesn't automatically return to automatic, that car is dark. But the customer never knows because the dash is lit up like the Vegas Strip. It is like you are driving with your full illumination, you've got these nice bright DRLs, you've got a dashboard that's lit up, but nobody behind you can see the car. So there's got to be either a way... Uh, that the, the manufacturer goes back, retroactively fixes this, um, whether it be a, a spring switch, so you try and override it and it returns it to auto, or just driver <laughs> education, but good luck on that. Well, one, one thing I would like to say, every time I bring the topic up, which is annually for the last 15 years, I believe, a lot of people say, if people are too stupid to know this, they shouldn't be driving. And I just want to say to anyone listening – that that's not going to cut it and it's not going to help. I'm glad that you're bright enough to know and remember all the time. I think that's great. There's times I've forgotten, but I think it's really important to talk to the people in your household because some of they, they might turn it off or you might not know that they've turned it off, but check out all the drivers in your house, ask them if they know what the auto setting is and why it's so important to have it set there. Most of us have gotten into a rental car at some point. Um, and it's it's different, or Chris said, a mechanic has changed it or a detailer has changed it. But I really wish, if you're the one who knows and knows how important it is, help the people around you, new drivers, new drivers especially, they don't know all this stuff going on. And I think we have to move away from the behavior of you're too stupid to drive, don't do it. Our, our roads are really well lit. A lot of people are not aware between that dashboard Chris spoke about and well lit roads. They're not aware their headlights aren't on. 
So it is a behavioral thing. We've tried so hard to get the manufacturers to come to the table. Uh, Transport Canada has said they've accomplished that. I don't know that they have, but that doesn't solve the last 15 years worth of cars on the road that are still having the issue. So try a little kindness and, you know, give your expertise down to another generation or neighbors and just help people out, especially new drivers that maybe not know or a car that gets driven by multiple people. And herein ends the speech for today. Chris Muir, you've been awesome. I want to thank you for your time today. This is great. You've been a lot of fun on Ask a Mechanic. Hopefully we'll have you back and we'll do this again. Well, I certainly hope so. It's always a pleasure, Lorraine. Subscribe to this and other great driving.ca podcasts in iTunes, Spotify, or using your favorite app. Thanks for listening to The Driving Podcast. Hey there, Andrew McCready here from Post Media's Plugged In Podcast the half-hour show taking you down Canada's electric vehicle highway. Super excited to be launching Season 5 in mid-October with a full slate of guests covering all the EV topics that matter to you and our planet. Just as with seasons past, we'll be talking to the experts and the everyday people who are driving the EV revolution forward in this country and around the world. Be sure to check out all the past episodes by subscribing to Plugged In wherever you listen to your podcasts or at driving.ca. If, like me, you live life in four-wheel drive while brushing your teeth with rough-cut pine lumber, you'll want to listen to the Truck Guy podcast from Driving.ca. The Truck Guy podcast is presented by Driving.ca's Matthew Guy. I'll host a new expert guest every episode to talk about pickup trucks and 4x4s. Ride Shotgun as I explore truck-related topics ranging from towing and overlanding to the latest models and their hot new features. Produced right here in Canada, the Truck Guy podcast is your dirt road ride to fresh inside takes on the latest truck news, test drives, how-to tips, and, just maybe, a dose or two of high-octane opinion. Join me to explore the best that Canada has to offer for off-road wheeling, towing and hauling, camping, and a bit of truck-based DIY. (laughs) Beds aren't just for sleeping, they're for hauling dirt, towing trailers, and just about any other work or recreation task you can think of. The Truck Guy Podcast is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you download your favorite audio program.